This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Hey guys, Tommy Vitor here. I'm hosting a new podcast called World Corrupt with my friend Roger Bennett from the Men in Blazers podcast. Soccer is a game that has often been called the world's most important, least important thing. Yet November's World Cup will force fans to confront and grapple with the complexities of the tournament that was awarded via corruption and built with atrocious labor practices that have left reported 6,500 migrant workers dead. Each week on World Corrupt, Roger and I will explore what it means to be a fan and responsible citizen of the world while watching the world's most popular sporting event. New episodes of World Corrupt drop each Saturday in the Pod Save the World feed. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. <laughs> All of us had a different tone and I forgot my name. Yeah. Well, you know, look, we haven't done this in a while. Welcome it's back. A, it's been a couple of days. Uh, on today's pod, we'll talk about what's at stake in the next phase of impeachment and we'll check in on a 2020 primary that is as unsettled as ever heading into the final two months before the Iowa caucuses. We are two months away. Almost exactly. Woo. Speaking of Iowa, Tommy. Mm-hmm. I believe you have a new episode out tomorrow. You want to tell us what uh, what this one's about? I do, John. Well, episode three, we're going to check back in with some of the field organizers we've met along the way. We're going to talk about the chase for big endorsements. Uh, that means elected officials and some people who might surprise you. You have to listen to find out. And then we're going to talk about all the reasons people think the Iowa caucuses are terrible, undemocratic, and otherwise uh, shouldn't go first. Cool. All right. Well, tune in, everyone. Uh, and of course, we have a favor to ask. Please help fight voter suppression in the 2020 election by donating to Fair Fight, which is Stacey Abrams' organization that has already helped Democrats win in Kentucky and Louisiana. Uh, you've already helped us pass $1.5 million. Started with a $1 million goal. Then we wanted to go to a $2 million goal. And on the way to $2 million, we're already at one and a half. We would love you to help us get to two, get us that last half a million. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash fairfight to chip in today. Uh, this is something that really makes a difference, which we've already seen in the 2019 election. So, That's right. Unless you don't care about that. Right. Unless you want Trump to win. Right. That's right. Okay. Let's get to the news. Today, House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff is expected to send his colleagues a draft of the report on their committee's impeachment investigation. I don't think it's going to be too good for Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, I can't some... wait to find out where Adam Schiff came down on this whole thing. We're out of the prediction business, <laughs> but I feel safe on this one. He's going to be like, um, did you see that shit last week? <laughs> Come on. It's crazy. So he's going to circulate the report. The uh, Intelligence Committee will then vote on whether to approve the report and send it to the House Judiciary Committee, which is the committee charged with drafting articles of impeachment. 
As they consider this, judiciary will be holding their first impeachment hearing on Wednesday of this week, uh, which seems like it will be a schoolhouse rock for impeachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to have a bunch of constitutional experts testifying about. Yeah, it'd be, be like cool schoolhouse rock, except if like some of the cartoons were on PCP. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or nerdy professors. Like, how does a bill become a law? Well, first it passed the House, then Matt Gates comes at it with a box of pizza for a while. Yeah, right. Charges <laughs> it, yeah. yeah and one the thing... biggest goons in the House all gather together, try to beat it like a pinata. So, yeah, so what they're going to try to do is have a number of constitutional experts testify on what constitutes an impeachable offense and what the process should look like. Um, guys, what do we think the goals are for House Democrats in this next phase of impeachment? Um what does sort of an ideal process look like from now until the full House votes on articles of impeachment? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, look, I, so this this hearing on the 4th is this panel of constitutional experts. They're going to focus on defining an impeachable offense, which I guess is setting the mood music to understand why the charges against President Trump are, in fact, impeachable. Like, uh, like Lovett, I'm less than uh, hopeful that it's going to be a, a staid and uh, thoughtful, substantive affair. I think it will probably be. And why is that? Because you have uh, goobers like Louis Gohmert, Matt Geitz, Jim Jordan, and Doug Collins. Those are four Republican members of Congress who are four of the worst of the worst people in the entire body who are going to do everything they can to distract, to make stupid process arguments, to otherwise trip up Jerry Nadler, who... You know, like, let's hope he is as good at this as um, Adam Schiff was, but I think it'll be harder because of the Judiciary Committee's makeup and rules. So, you know, he won't be able to rule with an iron fist the way Schiff was. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of it is that the, the Judiciary Committee now has to do two things. So on the one hand, it's like Adam Schiff and the Democrats just spent, a, like, it was like a Great British Bake Off and they made, like, a beautiful cake. And now the Judiciary Committee is going to kind of, like, cut it up and serve it and be is like... It a technical did- challenge? This was a technical challenge. They did not know what was going to be in their baskets. Who was the showstopper? <laughs> the show's That's an interesting question. Who was a showstopper? Ugh, I think patriotism. Uh, no, I guess all I guess we just don't totally understand that like what the judiciary views its role. Like what is success for the judiciary committee? Is it simply kind of taking what Adam Schiff did in the committee and uh, you know, putting it on the legal legs or is it are we going to hear a bunch of other impeachable offenses. We learned uh, last week or the week before time runs together that they were going to look into some of the lies that Donald Trump may have put in writing in the Mueller report. Like, mm-hmm. I guess we just don't fully understand the scope of what judiciary is going to do yet. Yeah. I think this is all about uh, raising the stakes of what Trump did um, because Democrats have uh, proven <laughs> um, pretty convincingly uh, to most people who've actually been watching this closely and aren't. Um, you know, partisan Republicans who've had their brain addled by Fox News, that uh, Donald Trump did what he's accused of doing. Uh, Witnesses testified, witnesses that worked in his own administration testified that he did this. And so I think the question left is, okay, he did this. Is it in fact impeachable? And we have said many times that, um, you know, uh, trying to rig an election, foreign interference, using the powers of the presidency to target your political opponents. These are some of the things that the founders worried about when they wrote the Constitution and created the impeachment clause in the Constitution. And so I think the hope is, you know, we can educate the public about why it's so important. I think the obstacles they have or what Tommy just laid out is that um, there are far more clown there are a lot more clowns on uh, in the republican side of the judiciary judiciary committee than there were in the intel committee and i think even on the democratic side you know people who 
are on the Intel committee tend to be a bit more serious and staid. And so, you know, look, my hope is that Nadler and all the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee take note of how well the House Intel Committee conducted the hearings and how Democrats did not launch into, no one launched into big speeches to hear themselves talk and to try to get sound bites. Everyone took it very seriously. Almost every single Democratic member, they did fantastic jobs. People in the Judiciary Committee should follow that example. I think. Yeah. Raise the stakes, but also, I think, lowering the bar, which by that I mean... Got to get in between the stakes and the bar. <laughs> it doesn't have... You don't have to commit a crime to be impeached. An impeachable mm. offense is actually far short of, of a criminal act, if you look back in terms of the in the Constitution and the founding documents uh, that better define it than the Constitution. Yeah, so for, that's I mean, part of the process. For just one example, bribery, the way it was written in the Constitution, is not how we understand bribery as a legal term today and with the law like in in the in the constitution they included bribery and high crimes along with high crimes and misdemeanors for impeachable offense and it meant simply using your public office for personal gain yeah that's what that's what bribery you have jared grease the zoning guy right (laughs) and then you're good to go and you build the building um do you think it's gonna be more challenging to hold media attention without any new bombshells or fact witnesses in this in this phase well yeah that's a good good warning. The uh, it, it it's also just the thing that inured the intelligence committee hearings from Republican kind of showmanship winning the day is there were just fascinating important pieces of testimony that you know we didn't know what Sondland was going to do. Then he went further than people expected. There was fascinating dramatic testimony from career bureaucrats no one had ever heard of they did a great job in pushing back against republican talking points throughout that hearing you know absent that driving purpose i do worry what happens when also by the way like you know they added jim jordan as a ringer to the intelligence committee because they looked at their lineup and they realized they didn't have the kind of showman that they needed right and this is a committee that has multiple just it is a barbershop quartet of goons and like they are going to do everything they can to make this a mess and what we saw when Nadler was in charge of hearings like this that had been more successful than it was in the intelligence committee yeah i'm a little bit worried about our attention span i mean there's not going to be anything new this probably won't be taken live you know from from start to finish the way the other hearings were um, I'm also a little bit worried about the Democrats' desire to be perceived as fair by the media, the referees, right? There's all this conversation right now about whether Trump will or will not participate. Uh, and I think that's a fair discussion. I think it's fair for Trump to say, you know, to make that decision on his own. But, uh, you know, the Judiciary Committee, I think, has been shown to be a little more worried about optics of fairness and the media referees don't give a shit about optics of fairness, right? Matt Geitz can storm a committee room and say that no one is allowed to hear uh, the testimony that's being offered, even though a quarter of Congress has access to the depositions that are happening, and it gets reported as a, a reasonable thing to do. So that makes me a little nervous. Yeah, I mean, to me, that goes it goes back to the stakes, right? Like, there's a reason that uh, Democrats have decided that uh, what Trump did may warrant impeachment right before an election where we may be able to vote him out of office. And that reason is he's trying to rig that election. He has tried in the past, and if he gets off, he will continue to try to do that. And that is a serious, extremely serious situation, which warrants his impeachment. And that has to be um, on everyone's mind. Um, To your point, Tommy, 
uh, Nadler did invite Trump and his attorney to participate in Wednesday's impeachment hearing and question the witnesses. The president has declined to participate, at least for this hearing. Um, Nadler has given Trump and the Republicans on the committee until Friday, December 6th, to decide whether they want to call any witnesses or mount any kind of defense of Trump whatsoever in future hearings, which there will be. Um, why do we think that Trump has decided that for now, at least, uh, he's not participating? And uh, is this a smart move? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems very hard for me to imagine them participating, uh, in part because what we saw in the Intelligence Committee hearings, I think, is instructive for the way Trump handles these things. There were two kinds of questions. There were the real legal questions from uh, the committee lawyer, and then there was the fanfare drama, Ukraine hoax, where's the, you know, shift lied, all that kind of uh, Fox News noise. And that's actually, I think, where they were far more successful. They really, you know, didn't have very much luck in actually substantively attacking this case. I mean, the, the only Republican who had a chance of perhaps engaging with this in seriousness was Will Hurd. And by the end, he just was like, he opened up his brain like a briefcase, took his brain out and just sort of like threw it away. We're like, sorry, I'm <laughs> retiring. Don't need that anymore. I give up. I'm out. But uh, so, I, you know, <laughs> the the lawyer, the White House lawyer's response uh, to the Wednesday was was basically like, why are we going to participate in basically school? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this sounds like school to sounds me. Boring. We don't do school. Uh, but so I, I don't really think the Wednesday hearing is doesn't matters very much in terms of whether Trump participates or not. But whether or not they want to add legitimacy when they don't really have much of a substantive argument, I, I think it's hard to imagine. Yeah, participation is going to be Rudy Giuliani, Bernie Carrick, and a, a bouncer from the Forty Forty Club just cracking his knuckles at the day. And time. they already have they already have lawyers. I, I, I Jim do, Jordan's his lawyer. Let me just like one. I don't think it's totally unreasonable of the Trump team to say in this instance, hey. It's weird for us to participate in a hearing where we don't know the witnesses yet. That, to me, would feel like a bit of a setup. I not, might not participate in it either. Totally. But like bigger picture, I don't know why. I don't see the political upside to participation for them. They know he's guilty. They're not, they have their goons on this committee who can undercut witnesses or, or try to make it about CrowdStrike or Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or whatever nonsense they're going to do to distract. And then Trump, knowing that this is ultimately a messaging war about the election, can say what he wants to say on Twitter, on television, over the screaming hum of a helicopter, unchecked by Jerry Nadler or the rules of a committee. Uh, yeah, I think there's also the possibility that they believe that the Senate is going to be friendlier territory because Mitch McConnell runs the Senate and the Republicans. And so if they participate in the Senate trial, maybe it'll be more favorable conditions for them. Mm -hmm. I do think this is an opportunity for Democrats to make this a political problem for him to not participate. And the reason I think that is because when you dig through the polling, both the polling that we did and some of the polling that's come out, it has surprised me at least that, um, you know, when you ask people, uh, you know, what concerns you most about what Trump did, the cover up, mm -hmm. the obstruction, him hiding something that worries people even more than some of the things that he did. And I think that him not participating and him refusing to testify, him refusing to provide witnesses, mm -hmm. him refusing to provide exculpatory evidence. I think it makes him look guilty to people. And I think Democrats yes. need to, and if you want to keep people's attention in this new phase, you have to change the story a little bit from what we had before. And before, during the Intel hearing, it was all about 
Trump and Ukraine and all the stuff that he did. This can be about Trump knows he's guilty. The Republicans know he's guilty. They're not trying to mount a defense. If he thinks that he's innocent, he would come testify or he would have witnesses testify. He would provide some evidence. He is not doing any of these things. And there is a reason for that. What is the president hiding? It's interesting also, you know, they're not. We saw this during the previous hearings. We'll see this again. They're not really thinking strategically in terms of what is their long-term plan for avoiding political repercussions of impeachment? They seem very much kind of day-to-day thinking through this. Like, you know, they made this, the, the, you know, they, they hung their hat on hearsay in the early part of the Intelligence Committee hearings. And, of course, they knew that by the early part of the next week, we'd be hearing people who heard the call directly. And so now you think, okay, well, they're just thinking about whether or not they should participate in the Judiciary Committee hearings. But in part, what they're doing by obstructing as they're setting up the possibility of genuinely new and important revelation in the trial, Mm -hmm. that there's a possibility we may hear from some of these people uh, in the Senate trial uh, 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 that Trump barred from speaking earlier, and their their favorite defense that this is the snooze uh, won't be available. Also, you know, there's was some evidence over the weekend that Republicans don't necessarily see it as a political plus that he is not participating. Uh, Tom McClintock, California Republican who's on the Judiciary Committee, said, quote, I think it would be to the president's advantage to have his attorneys there. That's his right. Uh, he also said that John Bolton and Mulvaney should absolutely testify. But of course, Trump has to weigh that against the enormous catastrophic damage that would have been due to the doctrine <laughs> of executive privilege. But, you know, you have these moments where the Republicans, because love it, like you said, they don't, they have like a day-to-day strategy, are not always on the same page. And so you have these moments when they're in interviews, when they're asked a question about something that's happening in the future uh, around impeachment strategy, and they accidentally tell the truth (laughs) before they're pulled back. And in McClintock's case, it's like, yeah, he should probably participate because he looks guilty otherwise. You You know, know, it's it's so funny. You know, there's all, obviously, you know, Fox News exists because there's this claim that the mainstream media was biased against uh, uh, against conservatives, there is a kind of quality that's a natural resting place for the media, which is to constantly be wondering if what Democrats are doing is working, because it's a kind of a it's the it's the flip side of the uh, of the kind of whatever media coin that if they are if there is some innate if 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 people in the mainstream press are more likely to be liberals than they are to be conservatives, they tend to see these fights from the point of view of Democrats. And so the question is always, are Democrats going too far? What will happen with the Democrats? But it's a reminder when you see the kind of whatever cross purposes Republicans are speaking at that the same vexing questions as to what the politics of impeachment actually are and the fact that none of us really know, it applies to them just as much as oh, it yeah. applies to Democrats. Yeah. Early on, they said if Trump actually did withhold military aid to get dirt on Joe Biden, yes, that would be incredibly troubling. And now Lindy Graham is like ripping his shirt off, screaming like he'll never, ever vote to impeach. He doesn't care what the facts say. He won't even read the transcript. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, 
you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, on that note, you know, a bunch of polling came out last week, basically showed that public opinion on impeachment hasn't really moved since October. Uh, there's still a slight majority of voters who believe the president should be impeached and removed from office. The average is... support impeachment, 43.5% opposed, according to 538 um, average of all the impeachment polls. Um, Democrats are almost all in favor. Republicans are almost all opposed. Independents are split. Uh, And, you know, I bring this up because this appears to be the current measuring stick for reporters to determine whether impeachment is a success. Mm -hmm. Um, What was your reaction to uh, some of the polling over the, you know, basically a lot of it came out in that last last week right before thanksgiving i'll just say you were (laughs) if the polling got here slowly over the course of six months like if the polling had been at the uh, earlier in the in the ukraine when the ukraine news started breaking if the polling had been more anti-impeachment and ended to this place people would be saying wow this is we're at the end of nixon here but basically the status quo ante of most of the country thinking Trump is a criminal uh, with a, with his base continuing to support him no matter what. And then some squishiness around whether or not impeachment is 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 whether it's not it's too far. Like if if, if the fact that we've been here from the very beginning has meant these polls don't have very much impact, but it's staggering. You know, a plurality of the country wants this guy removed from office immediately. It's hot. I mean, and, you know, look, we've been here for a little while since the Ukraine matter. But if you look at the polls since last spring and summer when we were all calling for impeachment too it was at like 30 40 45 like it did have that bill the ukraine story hit but the, and it changed it yeah and yeah. and i and i just think that when we did our poll on impeachment which was back in october um with change it was the number that really sticks in my mind still is 94% of democrats and democratic leaning independents were supportive of the inquiry uh, 94% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents were against the inquiry, and 2% of people yeah. didn't have their mind made up. Well, so, uh, though I do think, one, I, the polling came right after Gordon Sondland had testified. I, I don't know that it fully captured you know, people understanding what he did or said, and then we hit this sort of frozen week with the holiday where there isn't new polling. So I think we'll, we might see things change still. Was I disappointed that it didn't move enormously? A little, Sure. I'd love to see it move more, but did I expect it to move more? No. I think the key thing is the hardest part of this process, this education process that we're undergoing about Trump's criminality, is getting to the least well-informed, least partisan people. We need them to understand what Donald Trump did and what happened, and it's very hard to do when they're not paying attention. But there are persuadable voters out there. 
538 said that one in four people are persuadable. And these are all the least liberal, least conservative, least well-informed individuals. And so that's the process and it's getting to those people. And I think, unfortunately, that's not going to be easy through earned media. It's going to have to be through paid media and TV ads and digital spends. And frankly, the the, the whole course of the campaign could be about these issues. We gotta so get, we have some time here. We got to get Jerry Nadler on TikTok. And, <laughs> and, and we should set this expectation now. We may never reach those people because by virtue of the fact that they are not that partisan and mm-hmm. don't pay attention that much, these may be voters who don't pay attention to much of what's going on in Washington and politics until it's time to vote in November. And that's just, I mean, we're dealing, we're going to talk about this in the primary too. There is a, you know, we talk about sort of like partisan bubbles a lot, but we don't necessarily talk as much about information bubbles and that there is all of us, whether we're Republican partisans or Democratic partisans who are watching the news and paying attention to politics. And there's a whole rest of the country that is barely checking in. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, something like impeachment of the president, you can see a lot of undecided people being like, yeah, I mean, I don't like Trump that much either, but maybe this election's in November and I don't know what's going on. It seems like he did something bad, yeah. but I don't care. It's also, I think, one one lesson that's it's an unfortunate lesson that Republicans learned and Democrats have slowly been learning, too, is. Uh, people take signals from leaders as to what's partisan and what's not. And the way Trump has successfully kept Republicans in line, mostly throughout impeachment, including the people that were the most gettable, the Will Hurds, really does, I think, ultimately matter in that the process is partisan as long as Republicans don't participate in it. And as long as Republicans don't participate in it, they can claim the process yeah. is partisan and and call it sort of a a classic political fight in Washington. And I mean, it's literally been the strategy of the Republican Party yeah. since uh, Mitch McConnell decided exactly. to obstruct everything that Barack Obama did since 2009. But, <laughs> and it was effective and it worked. And I think, uh, you know, it's really, really hard to break the back of those who look for for those signals. But the reality is that one in five respondents in the recent Quinnipiac poll said they could still change their minds on impeachment. Yeah. Right? So there's lots of work that can be done. The challenge that we face as Democrats is that no one trusts the government no one trusts the media. They think all politicians are bad. That's in large part thanks to decades of Republican efforts to undermine those institutions. But, you know, it's, a, it's an uphill climb. But look, stepping back, I wouldn't want to be Donald Trump going into a reelection with these numbers. Yeah. And I do think we may be underestimating what it's going to feel like to most of the country when they wake up one morning, turn on the news, read the paper and and see Donald Trump has been impeached by the House of Representatives. Yeah, that might break through. You know, that's going to be different than any of these hearings that some people didn't watch. I also think there there was some data in all the polling that we got that shows that it might be making some difference. The CNN poll found that um, 53% say Trump improperly used his office to gain political advantage, which was up from 49% who said the same in October. Um, the Reuters uh, Ipsos poll was interesting. Uh, they It's just before the hearings, it found that net support for impeachment was three points. That increased to four points after the first week of hearings, five points after the second week of hearings, and the latest poll right before Thanksgiving showed it at seven points. So there is some polls are showing some movement, but I, I think it's going to be slight. And I think what, what what does all this mean for the Democrats, right? Because I do think we have to set expectations now. We can't say that a win for us is if we suddenly convince all of these independents and persuadable voters. No, no. <laughs> because it just might not happen, you know? I mean, I think- Or a single Republican. Right, exactly. Like, official. That just can't be the yardstick the for way. success here. It's got to be just educating the people about who Donald Trump is, 
the the ways he's bending the government to advance his political interests and make that part of the narrative that we use to beat him in an election. Yes, I th- totally agree. It's it, also it's also you know. Whenever we're defining success, we're talking about this in political terms. And I think one of the lessons of, of what we've seen so far is we're doing our best when we're not even engaging on those terms. Right. If the question is like if the question to a Democrat is uh, what does success look like in impeachment? I think the answer is we are here to demonstrate what Donald Trump did and what he did wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Like success is simply doing everything we can to avoid this political pundit version of impeachment and stay completely focused on the substance and the facts and let success or failure be determined by our ability to get that in front of people. If Republican politicians want to be accomplices in his crime, then that's good information for the voters to know when they go <laughs> right. to the polls in November. Right. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's the answer. <laughs> and uh, as Matt Gates uh, switches license plates on a uh, non-discreet passenger van in a parking garage somewhere in D.C., what? Who's he he's, kidnapping? He's, What's he, happening there? No, he's just making a. He's just you know getting a getaway car. Uh, oh, getaway. Okay. He's, cool, he's cool, abetting. Cool. Is the van out? led me to believe this was a kidnapping. Yeah. I'm in the- <laughs> <laughs> I was like the A team. Um, What's happening here? I didn't know where that was. The G team. Matt Gates has has kidnapped Jerry Nadler, and guys, it's a comedy. <laughs> All right, let's talk about 2020, please. With two months to go until the Iowa caucuses, the race for the Democratic nomination is still wide open, which Dan Balls of the Washington Post wrote about this weekend. Quote. What continues to define the Democratic race is the absence of a candidate who has truly captured the imagination of voters. He also wrote that the phases of the campaign where the progressive candidates seemed to be rising this past year were a, quote, misleading indicator of where the party's electorate was on issues like health care. And that, quote, more than in some past campaigns, Democratic voters appear torn between heart and head. Many are looking for a candidate who will inspire them while also being somewhat risk averse. Wanted to get your reaction to this piece because I think it's a it's a pretty accurate summary of where the media narrative is right now. Whether it's an accurate summary summary of where the race is right now, I leave that to you guys. But it's certainly not just Dan Balls writing this. I think that's he pretty much sums up where most of the the punditocracy is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I I I do think this is something we've observed a lot, which is that a lot of voters are taking a game theory approach to how they make this decision. They want to choose someone that they think their neighbor will also choose. Therefore, that person is the most electable. Um, uh, you know, I, the race is pretty. It's a it's a toss up right now, yeah. right? And at this point, at this point in two thousand eight, Hillary Clinton was beating Obama by like twenty points in the national polls. The Iowa polls were tighter, but it wasn't until that result that Obama shot up and eventually overtook her. So I just think people are moving around a lot. Like I, I don't, I, I don't know what else to say right now. It's hard to predict. It's just going to be very fluid through the Iowa caucuses. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's a. It's. I thought it was a good piece. I think it sort of captures a feeling that we've all had. It's also in some ways pretty simple. Uh, if there was a clear person who should, uh, who could unite the party as the front runner, uh, they'd be winning uh, in a way that was unequivocal, and that's not been the case. Um, I also do think, though, you know, I think sometimes uh, um, narratives are taking things that are happening in parallel and trying to put them in order, mm. right? Like, oh, you know, there was this wave that happened, and you know, there was this first. There was the the coming of the liberals, and then there was the coming of the moderates, and and actually, you know, you look at at Biden's numbers that have ultimately been, I think, steadier than people thought, at least nationally. Mm-hmm. And maybe part of it is also, you know, what does it take for someone to change their mind, right? You know, we we follow every 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 <laughs> uh, uh, every undulation in the race. Meanwhile, if you're just paying attention, right, what fact, what whatever facts led you to support Joe Biden? 
they haven't changed enough to get you to change your your view, right? That that the race is actually he's been. I think CNN did totally consistent. CNN did an average of uh, ten polls or something, and thirty percent barely moved outside thirty percent. They said he got a bump over thirty when he announced, and then he went below significantly after that first debate when uh, Kamala Harris roughed him up, and since then he's been steady. And what's interesting is the other person. I mean, this and this sort of ruins the narrative of like the rise of the moderates. The other person who's been very, very steady is Bernie Sanders, who's averaged around 16% in those same 10 polls that CNN averaged. Mm -hmm. So you get Biden at 30, Bernie at 16. And the only real movement that's happened in this primary is the rise of Elizabeth Warren. And then now she's lost some altitude after this Medicare for all thing, which we can talk about. And then sort of the rise of Pete Buttigieg early in the race, then he sort of fell down to earth, and now he's sort of back on top, at least in Iowa and New Hampshire. And beyond that, it's been a bunch of other candidates, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, all the rest, trying to break into that top tier and and not really succeeding. That's yeah. basically been the whole race. And, and, and also I think part of it too is it's like there is like a little bit of a Mario Kart effect in that when you're in the lead in Mario Kart, uh, you don't get as good items. You know, do you say Mario? Mario, I say Mario because I'm a because I'm trash from Island. Island. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, every time one of like you know Warren rose to the front, and then right. all of a sudden every red shell was coming right. for her. And then you're like yellow banana. What am I going to do with this? Yeah, then you're getting nothing. Yeah, green shell. You get green shell. What are you? Cool. What am I, marksman? What am I, American <laughs> sniper? I, I can't use this green shell. <laughs> I mean, I do think. Look, I think you can. <laughs> God, I love that game. I know it's really fun. I think that the. Um, I think you can overdo the whole like moderate lane, progressive lane. And, you know, you can see that there's a, an, another piece in the Washington Post this morning by um, Lynn Vaverick and John Sides, who are two great political scientists at UCLA. Lynn's been on Wilderness. Um, and they're doing the, you know, they did this whole thing where the second choices of all these candidates, it's like, if you support Bernie, who's your second choice? A huge chunk is Joe Biden. If you support Joe Biden, who's your second choice? A huge chunk is Bernie Sanders. Same thing with Warren. Same thing with Buttigieg. All of these like progressive moderate lanes are all mixed when you ask people their first and second choice. I think what we're talking about here, at least with Warren, is the Medicare for all fight. Mm -hmm. And I do think she's probably lost some altitude, not just because Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and, and Joe Biden and a bunch of other candidates have sort of attacked her about Medicare for all on the debate stage and in their own ads, but Republicans and the insurance industry have been spending, which I didn't even realize until I read this this long piece about it in the Washington Post, like a ton of money in a lot of swing states just running ads against Medicare for all and eliminating private insurance. And that I think has had an effect on some voters. So it's Definitely. not that she's too progressive in general or Bernie is because Bernie's been steady. It's a specific attack on eliminating private health insurance and Medicare for all. I also think in, in Iowa, it's it's a proxy for an electability argument. And so I think people like Michael Bennett, who is not someone we've talked about a ton on the show, I think he ran a million dollars in in ads in Iowa against Medicare oh, for really? All. Yeah, right. So like you're you're seeing that there's a lot of headwinds for her on this policy issue and on the electability conversation generally. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So for most of the primary Medicare for all has been the issue that most exemplified the moderate versus progressive battle. But over the weekend, uh, Pete Buttigieg started running an ad in Iowa about his college affordability plan where he dings Warren and Sanders for their free college plans with this line. And I think we have a clip of the ad. I believe we should move to make college affordable for everybody. There are some voices saying, well, that that doesn't count unless you go even further, unless it's free even for for the kids and millionaires. But I only want to make promises that we can keep. Look, what I'm proposing is is plenty bold. I mean, these are big ideas. We can gather the, the majority to drive those big ideas through without turning off half the country before we even get into office. And that, I think, is the best governing strategy, as well as what it's going to take in order to win. And Lord knows we got to win. I'm Pete Buttigieg, and I approve this message. Interesting music there. Upbeat. Because Pete's upbeat. Upbeat, Pete. All right. So just so you know the difference between the plans. Under Warren's free college plan, and, and Bernie's too, um, but this is the details for Warren's, any American could go to a two- or four-year public college without paying a dime in tuition or fees, which is a $1.25 trillion investment over 10 years that she'd pay for with her wealth tax on people with a net worth of over $50 million. Under Pete's plan, tuition at a two- or four-year public college would be free for families earning up to $100,000, which he says is 80% of all families, and tuition would be reduced for families earning between $100,000 and $150,000. This is a plan that costs $500 billion over 10 years, paid for by higher taxes on the 1%. Uh, Warren Sanders and Pete have also all called for expanding Pell Grants so that students could get help with books and living expenses as well. And they're all going to invest more in historically black colleges and universities. Um, But Pete's shot at free college caused uh, all kinds of controversy on Twitter over the break, uh, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who said uh, who accused Buttigieg of channeling a Republican talking point about subsidizing rich kids. What did you guys think? I was I was thinking about this. It, it's a really sort of complicated yeah. political question to unpack because, as we've seen throughout this, it's actually very similar to the healthcare debate in that the political arguments and the policy arguments kind of get mixed up, and you kind of get the worst of both, mm. right? So, so I, I think you sort of separate the politics and the policy. Pete Buttigieg's plan is progressive. It is also true that what we're talking about what, one reason why it's progressive. It was Bernie Sanders' plan in 2017 that he introduced in the Senate. <laughs> that said, and and I, I've seen a lot of people being, I think, too critical of Pete's plan. In that, for the for the for 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 the vast majority of people, it's equally generous, right? It's going to provide free college for most people. Now, the question: What happens at the higher 
tax brackets. And this to me is actually an important policy debate that's been unfolding. And you have kind of two democratic schools of thought. One says we need to do the most good as efficiently as possible, that that's what it means to be practical. It doesn't make sense to tax people to then turn around and use it to send rich kids to college. That just makes the program more expensive. It makes it less popular. Nobody wants to uh, run around saying that they're going to give free college to millionaires. Uh, the more the more effective measure is something that is is means tested, costs less, it does more good. The I think the it's a and that has been, I think, a Democratic consensus approach to policy for a long time. What has changed in part because of Obamacare, because in part because of the politics of Republicans, is a bunch of more liberal members of the party looking at the Democratic record and saying, hold on a second, we've been biting off our nose to, to, to spite our face. When we do these means-tested, more complicated policy solutions, we get all the pain associated with doing big things. But because the benefits are diffuse, a little bit harder to understand, you're not sure who's getting them, who's not. Because they're not universal, there's less of a universal buy-in from everybody from the wealthy to the upper middle class to the middle class to the working class to the poor. They point to a lot of democratic tax proposals that have a, you know, a, a, an income tax credit here, a, a working tax credit there that makes the system complicated to understand who exactly is fighting for you. That's the kind of policy fight. Yeah, that is that's no that accurately represents. Well, but but it's also I mean I think a lot of people are are sort of it's it's a it's a philosophical fight. It's a fight about a philosophical approach to policy making, which is that if you make a program universal, it's going to get the most support and going to be the hardest to unravel. That's one piece. The other piece is that there's probably a legitimate critique that Pete's cutoff for getting free college is too low. So when he says we shouldn't be giving free college to millionaires, there are in fact a bunch of people between his cutoff level at like a hundred thousand dollars a year and a millionaire who wouldn't get free college under his plan. And so that seems misleading yeah, or look, insufficient. I think on the policy front, there's a good, and this is not a lot of the arguments that I saw on Twitter, but on the policy front, there's a good argument against Pete's plan based on what you just said, right? Which is like, you know, if you're a family making $200,000 a year. So look, uh, it's average four-year uh, tuition at a public university is $10,000 a year, right? So it's $40,000 over four years. So if you're a family making uh, $200,000 a year, you got a couple of kids like, yeah, maybe maybe it could be a bit more generous in that regard. Now, he still says, and you know, I haven't run the numbers, but that 80% of people would get to 80% of families would get free college under this plan. There's a lot of people, right? Yeah. But you're right, you could you could argue that it's not generous enough. I do think like some of the people on Twitter are being like, "Oh, does Pete also hate public parks and libraries and stuff like that?" Like, okay, the cost of a rich person walking into a public library or 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 a public park is a little bit different than you know, uh, tuition at a four-year university. <laughs> well, right. But I mean, this is the philosophical question that I actually think it's a really interesting debate, right? Because the point that... Now, now this is, I think, it's worth pointing out, too, that there's a way in which Pete is being so disingenuous. It's like, the reason the politics are toxic is in part because of the argument you're currently making. You are making the argument toxic. Right, because talk, he's had this plan for a while and no one said anything about it until he decided to take the shot in the ad, and, which is important to... Right, and also, I mean, so so... Yes, he's conflating the the richest of the rich with a huge number of people that won't get it. But even taking that on, even even you take it on Pete's the political argument he's making. Okay, so you don't want one percent of students to be eligible this because you don't like the message it sends. But of course, the cost of one percent is about one percent of the program. Yeah, but and I see. They, I, I get that what he's saying, but there's also. I mean, we just talked about the totals of each of the plans, right? Um, so it's. I think, and this would be a better argument from him because I think you're right. He's exaggerating it, and 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 his spokesperson, Liz Smith, 
did so even worse on Twitter. Well, they she, want the fight, clearly. She said, if you think that a worker who didn't go to college should pay for college for CEO's kid, then Pete Buttigieg isn't your candidate. That's just incorrect because a worker who didn't go to college will not be paying for this plan because whether it's Pete's plan, Bernie's plan, or Warren's plan, they're all paid for by taxing rich people in the top 1%. So a worker's not paying for it. I think the better argument is, you know, Warren's plan is $1.2 trillion over 10 years. Pete's is $500 billion over 10 years. I think you can make an argument, that's a lot of money in between there. Could we use that extra money to pay for, you know, anti-poverty stuff or healthcare or any of the other things that we need to do out there as opposed to using that as subsidies for wealthier people? Yeah, look, I think a lot of what's driving the uh, ferocity of the attacks on this plan and on Pete generally is the same as what's driving the viciousness of the attacks on his team doing a dance to high hopes, right? It's like <laughs> he's doing better. People are nervous and they're mad at him and they're lashing out. Uh, so, okay, it is what it is, the political fight. But I do think it's gone a little too far. People are like, this is how we're going to create an entrenched elite class by sending millionaires' kids yeah, to just... non-public institutions. <laughs> like, it's gotten completely absurd. Like, I do think there's some disingenuous to the the argument made by Pete. You're exactly right that no one attacked him back until he started running this TV ad. But, you know, a lot of people might argue that tax dollars are fungible. So in some ways, you are asking lower-income people to pay for the tuition of rich kids because, right, all tax dollars go into the same pot. But this attack is going to come in a general election. Like, we should figure out a way to deal with it on substance. I just think, yeah, it's like money is not free here, you know? And, like, $700 billion difference between the plans. Like, I think you can you can make an argument that that $700 billion, it's better spent on poor and working class Americans than people making over 150,000 families making over $150,000 a year on college. You can make that argument. Now, I think you're right. Like, I don't think Pete has zeroed in on that argument. He's made a much simpler one that is that can be taken as disingenuous as well. But I think there's there's a, there's a there's an argument there for sure. Yeah. The, the other thing that that I, I want to point out on the means testing thing is it has long been a Democratic argument that universal programs are more politically popular because they're universal. That's Social Security. That's mm -hmm. Medicare. No one wants to touch either of those things because wealthier people get them too. But I will say Medicaid is very means tested. In fact, it only goes to the poorest people. The last poll taken on Medicare last month, 74% of Americans have a favorable view of Medicaid. We just won two governorships in deep red states because the Democrat, both moderate Democrats, by the way, uh, defended the Medicaid expansion. Medicaid is extremely popular, even though it's for only low-income people. Yeah. So I don't necessarily know that... It's not a perfectly clear... <laughs> there are arguments to be made on both sides. I mean, look, we we you know, we talked about this recently, that, that because there was so much good stuff inside of the Recovery Act, a lot of people didn't know how much good it did on energy or, or that their tax credit may have come from the stimulus bill. And, and you know, we talk about how Republicans were able to use the complexity of Obamacare to undermine Obamacare, right? Medicaid is very popular, but we've also seen that it took until the threat of Obamacare being removed that people became protective of the benefit, in part because it was a more complicated uh, and less uh, and and not a clear universal program. No, I just think, you know, last point of this, we can move on. I think the, the, and the reason we're talking about this is we're getting to the stage in the primary where, and you alluded to this, Tommy, like the... <laughs> We are the candidates. Ha it is in the interest of the candidates to magnify to a huge degree their policy differences. And in reality, those differences may not be as large. Right. Like, yes, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have more progressive um, 
college tuition plans and Pete Buttigieg, but they're all sort of they're they're all going to make college a lot more affordable for a lot of people who need it. You know, I, yeah. and it's going to be free for a lot of people who need it. And I think like as I watch all of these profiles and read all this stuff, like Elizabeth Warren is more pragmatic than I think even her campaign presents. Right, like she's done a lot of wheeling and dealing in the Senate. So has Bernie Sanders, and I think Pete is more progressive than uh, he is even uh, presenting himself as right now because he's trying to carve out this lane for him. He's the one who started the primary talking about, you know, getting rid of the Electoral College and the filibuster and all those other things. So I think these candidates are closer together than they are trying to appear right now in order to win a primary. And that's just something that people should keep in mind. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I also do think, though, this is the ideological debate right now at the core of the Democratic Party. It's uh, do you add a public option or do you go for single payer? Do you do universal programs in the spirit of of Medicare, Social Security and the public schools? Or do you expand on the, you know, uh, 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 the social safety net by doing more means tested and practical additions? Right. Like, I think I think that that's a really good philosophical place for the party to be. I mean, that's just where we are. Yeah. Okay, one last story from over the break. On Friday, the New York Times ran a brutal piece about Kamala Harris's campaign, including quotes from a resignation letter signed by former state operations director Kelly Mellenbacher. Quote, this is my third presidential campaign, and I've never seen an organization treated staff so poorly. With less than 90 days until Iowa, we still do not have a real plan to win. Times went on to say, quote, even to some Harris allies, her decline is more predictable than surprising. In one instance after another, Ms. Harris and her closest advisors made flawed decisions about which states to focus on, issues to emphasize, opponents to target, all while refusing to make difficult personnel choices to, import or to impose order on an unwieldy campaign. Uh, this piece is sourced to more than 50 uh, current and former campaign staff members and allies, most of whom spoke on background or off the record. Uh, Tommy, what did you think of that story? Man. I, it's weird. I mean, there's been a couple stories like this about the Harris campaign. It's weird that you see a sort of rolling shakeup story. Usually something happens, <laughs> you know, like a change is made, someone is fired, a new strategy is put in place. This doesn't seem to go away. And it's a it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Your ability to run a campaign is in many ways the best proxy for your ability to run a government. And this is going to get wide circulation among Iowa caucus goers and New Hampshire everywhere else. So, you know, look, all 50 people quoted in that story are doing her an enormous disservice. Uh, that said, if clearly the strategy to date has not worked, clearly a lot of people feel deeply mistreated. Clearly there have been challenges in the campaign from the beginning that were not rectified fast enough, but man, it's, it, it was shocking. That the article, uh, just to be honest, when I read it, I was having incredible 2008 Hillary Clinton campaign flashbacks. I mean, it really, you could go through and change the names. And I felt like I was reading a story about 2008 because it was people being disloyal to the campaign, people airing their public grievances, and people feeling as though uh, they really had no other choice because things were being so mismanaged. So, you know, the people speaking do a great disservice when they uh, undermine their campaign by talking to a reporter. But that said, the fact that so many are putting themselves in that position tells you something uh, is incredibly unhealthy inside of that campaign. We've had, what, uh, 20-something candidates now, campaigns? Two campaigns have consistently had a lot of leaks to reporters about what's going on in the campaign in the process. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. <laughs> and... A lot of the other candidates, whether you're at the top of the polls, like whether it's Warren or Buttigieg or Sanders, you don't hear a lot about internally about their campaigns or people who've struggled, 
Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke dropped out. Like you just you didn't hear a lot about the internal machinations of theirs campaign. It is one of the most important things when you're building a campaign is to have a culture where people don't feel like when something goes wrong, you go run to a reporter. And it does seem like, I mean, 50 people is a lot of people, but it does seem like in her case, there is a lot of issues with some of these consultants, you know, that are on her campaign. And I feel bad for a lot of the younger staffers on that campaign, right, that have to deal with that. Um, But look, to me, like, and we've said this from the beginning, Kamala Harris, I think, is one of the most talented politicians out there. I think she is charismatic and she is brilliant and she like you know i just i've always been a huge fan of kamala harris and i think we've all sort of been worried since the beginning of the of the campaign that this enormous talent and the candidate has not been served completely well by at least some measure of people around her (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. look i've been on campaigns where on the edwards campaign in 2004 uh we were not winning uh we were struggling to raise money at one point uh, to try to make our uh, dis- our financial disclosure about the amount of money we had on hand look better. We delayed a paycheck from before Christmas to after it. So there's a lot of grounds for uh, bitching and moaning and carping on that campaign, but no one did it because there was an internal culture and people liked each other and they felt loyal to the candidate and to each other ultimately. Because when you're one of 50 people calling back the New York Times to shit on the campaign strategy, you're making the likelihood that you and your best friends have a job in a couple of weeks considerably lower. So it, it, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's weird. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, and also at a certain point, it's it's not just that it's okay. So there's clearly no... Why do you do that, right? It's like, well, you don't do that if you feel like you're part of the team and that mm-hmm. you're rising and falling together. You do that because you you don't think it's your fault and you yeah. don't feel like you're being heard. You don't feel like your views are being represented. You feel like the candidate's being misserved. And all of that, yes, it ultimately, yes, it, it falls on the people that Kamala's put in place. But ultimately, she de- determines who that team is. And that team clearly is not serving her well at this point. Yeah. And look, it doesn't necessarily mean you always lose. I mean, I was on the... The Kerry campaign in the primary was a fucking viper pit. <laughs> yeah, there and it was way worse than than the Kamala Harris's campaign. There were firings and people quit and everyone went to the reporters all the time. And when it got to the point by when we won the primary, we were like, "What? We won the primary?" But it, but to the point, John, at least you guys made choices, right? Like yeah. Jim Jordan was fired, Robert Gibbs quit. Like it was shook up. John McCain in two thousand seven, things were shook up. Yeah. They changed their strategy. They invested all in New Hampshire and like then they could sort of move on from there. What's remarkable to me is they made this decision to fire half their staff in Baltimore and go to an Iowa first strategy and move people out, move a bunch of people out there many, many months ago. And then this story pops up like a month later. That's the weirdest part. Yeah. There's and- been every, every four or five weeks, it feels like there's been mm-hmm. an internal Kamala Harris process story that is detrimental to the campaign and you know in contrast that to the obama campaign in 07 and 08 i can count on one hand the number of really bad process stories we had because you can remember them because they made you feel so bad mm-hmm. you know i remember that like it's like a nagurney jeff zeleny story in the new york times in the fall when we were losing to hillary and everyone was wondering like who talked because no one ever no one ever really talked you know mm-hmm. and look this is just this is a cautionary tale for everyone else who is working on another campaign and also the Kamala harris campaign don't 
Don't call reporters back. Don't email them back. Politely decline. If you want your candidate are, to win. They are. You should be friendly to reporters. They you, are not your friends. <laughs> you tweeted this and a bunch of reporters at the New York Times texted me. Be like, tell your buddy to shut up. Yeah, right. This. Because they know. Because <laughs> guess what? Their job is to get the story. And a lot of them are very good at it. Yeah, Our job good. is to not give them the story. <laughs> this, giving them the story does not help the campaign. Politely decline. It's tough. But, Sorry, you know, reporter friends. You know, it is interesting. We're finally starting to see some of the winnowing uh, of the field we thought would happen. Joe Sestak dropped out. I know. Big I mean, man. look, like, well, I have a whole other section about Steve Bullock, Steve Bullock dropped out today. So things are changing. Finally, things are winnowing. I'm just thinking about it now that I'm no longer a camp. You know, I'm no longer. I'm a, I'm a journalist now. And my view is <laughs> campaign aides, keep reaching out. Call keep me. speaking your truth. Blow those whistles. DM me. All right. We need to know. All right. We care about the truth here at Crooked Media. Whistleblower. Leak, protection. leak, 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 leak. All right, everyone. That's it. We don't have a guest today, so we're just we're we're out right now. Happy That's Thanksgiving. It. Happy Thanksgiving. Great to be back. <laughs> it's great to be back. We will uh, we'll see you on Thursday. Bye, guys. Bye. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.